1: The knee-jerk reaction is gridlock is good for risk assets. Is that the right reaction? Leo Grahowski now joining us, Chief Investment Officer at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. What's your take on that?
3: Well, I think uh, today we're seeing a relief rally, and most participants um, in the markets are aware that um, a Republican president combined with a divided Congress Uh, isn't a bad combination for future market performance. It's not necessarily the best, but it's by no means the worst. So I think we're seeing that today. There's uh, obviously a a relief that it's behind us. We've got some certainty. And, um, And again, most market participants know that we're in a period, both seasonally and for the next couple of years, that's normally pretty favorable for the equity market.
2: Do you see any risk to the tax overhaul that passed last year?
3: Not with the gains that the Republicans picked up in the uh, in the Senate. And I think uh, the, the market, you could see this a little bit in the bond market today, right? I think this gridlock is good. It's probably showing up as much in the bond market as the stock market um, because of what you were talking about in your earlier segment with respect to debt and deficits, right? The, the, the chances of tax cut 2.0 are significant, significantly diminished, I think. And the bond market doesn't mind that. Right. I think it's it's stay the course with the fiscal policy that's been put in place, but don't necessarily add a lot more.
1: Of course, we did hear from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that they might work across the aisle on infrastructure spending. Do you think that's lip service at this point?
3: I, I think I th- that's the big uh, it's one of the two eyes right there's uh, there's infrastructure and then there's going to be investigation and I hope there's more talk around infrastructure than there is around investigations I think the market would be uh, favorably disposed to bar- bipartisan support for infrastructure
1: the market being equities bonds perhaps not so much
3: correct correct the the I think to pim's earlier point uh, you know how we pay for all of this uh, with a trillion three about to be floated, right, in, in bond debt at higher prices, um, I, I think that's something the, the bond market right now is, is breathing a bit of a sigh of relief for the time being.
2: Any thoughts on trade policy? Because that seems to be one issue in which you could get Democrats and Republicans together and a China bashing trade war that looks like something they both agree on.
3: Yeah, and I think the good news there, Pim, is is the markets become more prepared for, you know, a longer war of words on the trade front. So that I would put in the positive surprise um, uh, column, and I also think there's going to be a lot of focus here towards the end of the month on the G20 on the G20 meeting. Um, so through all this election, right, the key drivers for the market. Earnings, interest rates, economy—no changes in the B and Y Mellon view with respect to any of those—and the serious issues that we have to grapple with: trade and monetary policy. Right? They're still—they're still with us.
1: Well, which raises my question, going back to the the first question, which is: is the appropriate reaction to buy stocks here if trade is still the potential concern? That's not something that will get held up by gridlock.
3: I think you're seeing part of the relief rally is, I think, also a return to a bounce from an oversold condition. I think the the market overreacted to fundamentals that really hadn't changed that much. It was really just the focus on, you know, the Fed policy and this longer-lasting, you know, trade. I think the underlying market backdrop is still, in my view, very equity-friendly with respect to earnings, interest rates, inflation. Trade is a cloud that continues to build the longer it goes on, because I learned a long time ago that longer-lasting trade and tariffs have an S-word associated associated with them. And that's stagflation. And that's that's an environment that the market likes least.
2: As far as uh, the outcome of the election, that's one thing. But we still have all these unresolved issues. Do investors just kind of shrug their shoulders? What's the biggest question you're getting right now from investors?
3: You know, we touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, we're getting a lot of questions around debt debt and deficits. I think uh, in the wealth management business, you know, many of our clients are correctly thinking in in years, decades, multi-generational wealth transfer, right? And so interesting, as opposed to many market participants focusing on day-to-day, week-to-week, quarter-to-quarter, if you're really taking a multi-year outlook, the debt and deficit picture and how we are going to pay for it and who's going to pay for it is weighing, I think, more heavily on our clients' minds correctly, particularly given the uptick in interest rates.
2: Thanks very much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Leo Grohowski. he is the Chief Investment Officer for BNY Mellon Wealth Management, giving us a take on the results of the midterm elections and what it means for investors.
1: We've been listening to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell address reporters uh, today after the midterm elections, talking about the potential for uh, both parties to work together on infrastructure spending, as well as tackling what he called the health care crisis. Here with us to talk about uh, what we've just heard and what it might mean for both uh, sides of Congress going forward. Steve Dennis joins us now, Senate reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, Steve, what was your big takeaway from that address?
4: You know, I think that was a very happy Mitch McConnell. Uh, There was a lot of nervousness the last few weeks that the the Democrats would be able to maybe even pick up a seat or hold serve. and, and, And the fact that Republicans are now looking to expand their majority by several seats. Is uh, it's huge for for everything that he cares about, but especially the judiciary. If there's another Supreme Court opening, it's going to be a cakewalk. It's not going to be this excruciating battle where uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski had to be on board, and and uh, and his members got beat up for months, uh, you know, and so. You know, as far as actually the agenda, I thought it was interesting. He, he came out and said that he's already started discussing an infrastructure package with Nancy Pelosi. And he also said prescription drugs might be an area where there could be bipartisan agreement to save money. Now, that's not necessarily what you want to hear if you're in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, they were pretty happy they knocked off Claire McCaskill in Missouri. She'd been a uh, thorn in the side of uh, the big pharmaceutical companies. But you know we have a huge deficit issue. Uh, that's one thing that he did, didn't doesn't think that there's going to be much bipartisan agreement on dealing with the deficit anytime soon. But if there's one area where they seem to have uh, both sides saying we need to save some money for the taxpayers and for people, it's going to be prescription drugs um so it it is a very happy mitch mcconnell i mean this is this is about as good a result as you could have mapped out with a president who is unpopular enough to lose the house you know the fact that they're winning uh looks like you know there's still some votes out and but they're winning florida they're winning uh missouri big they're winning indiana big they're winning north dakota big these are not small victories and if they hold on on Arizona and Montana, uh, and this Florida recount looks like it's, you know, Nelson's behind by 40,000 votes, it's not likely to to change. Uh, this this has long, you know, Mitch McConnell's all about the long game. If, if they actually get to 54, 55 seats, it's almost impossible for the Democrats to come back and take back the Senate in 2020. You know, even if they take the presidency, Mitch McConnell might be standing right there, preventing them from doing all the stuff they want to do, um, and maybe even blocking Supreme Court justices that they want to put up. So, uh, this is a this is a very
2: big, uh, uh, very happy Mitch McConnell uh, this morning. You mentioned the deficit and infrastructure spending. How is anyone going to pay for this? You know, that's always been the rub,
4: right? You know, every once in a while, you can find stuff under the cushions of your couch. Uh, you know, I remember th- there's always ideas on infrastructure spending. Nobody ever wants to raise the gas tax, right? I mean, every once in a while. I mean, last year Trump said for a hot minute said maybe he'd consider raising the gas tax, but it's the most unpopular tax, and and generally people don't want to raise taxes. So maybe you can find things like oil drilling revenue. You know, uh, can can you give uh, the Republicans something like energy resources or selling off land or something, and you give the Democrats what they want, which is roads and bridges and transit and and all that stuff. So, uh, you know there there are ways to to reach these bipartisan deals if you don't care about the deficit as well. You just do what they've been doing the last two years. You know the deficit has been uh, expanding dramatically. Under Republican watch, part of it was the tax cut. A huge part of it were these bipartisan spending deals, where they basically took out the credit card and said, "We're going to increase spending by 150 billion a year, and you know our grandkids are going to pay for it." They didn't say, "Oh, here's our and plan. it's going to get more expensive because interest rates are going up." And and it's going to get more expensive because interest rates are going up. You know, you could see, uh, it's a very good chance, especially if interest rates keep going up. Uh, that we're going to have a trillion dollar deficit this fiscal year and a 1.1 next fiscal year. And, you know, voters so far have not been willing to come in and say,
2: hey, we care about that issue. Good luck trying to find that trillion dollars in the cushions of the couch. Thanks very (laughs) much. Stephen Dennis, congressional reporter for Bloomberg. Appreciate your work. Looking forward to more. Trading at Schwab
0: is now powered by Ameritrade
1: are awaiting comments from President Trump addressing the nation after the midterm election results rolled in. Joining us now to talk about uh, what we've been seeing and what to expect from this speech. Billy House joins us now, congressional reporter for Bloomberg, as well as Talu Alarunepa, White House correspondent for Bloomberg. We have both of them in the flesh here in our 1130 studios. It is very exciting. Billy, I want to start with you. How long do you think this is going to go? Because the last time President Trump held a conference like this, it went for more than an hour.
5: I suspect it's going to go fairly lengthy. He's got a lot of things to say, including bashing already Democrats for what he was describing as an intended reign of terror of investigations. That'll take up a lot of time.
1: (laughs) All right. (laughs) Tallulah.
6: And uh, the president likes to change the narrative. The narrative right now is that he lost the House and that he is seen as an unpopular president. And this Press conference is an opportunity for him to use the bully pulpit of the White House, which he uses on a regular basis to change the story. He may talk about the elections and try to put a positive spin on it, but I would caution the listeners to get ready for other topics to come up. He may want to talk about North Korea. He may want to talk about his weekend trip to Paris this weekend, where he's going to be meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin, possibly. There are a number of different issues that the president may throw out there. He may talk about getting rid of some cabinet officials or announce a new UN ambassador. Anything to change the story, change the narrative, get it on a positive uh, message for the president and have fewer people talking about all these investigations and subpoenas that are gonna be flying around because he lost the House.
2: Billy, what kind of issues do you think that House Democrats can present to the president and to Republicans that they would rather not be presented with?
5: That uh, the Republicans would not. Well, uh, Jerry Connolly, a congressman from Northern Virginia, who's chair of the subcommittee on government oversight, says it's going to seem like Democrats are drunk crazy with subpoenas. But he points out that that's in comparison to Republicans, that Democrats say basically gave the Trump administration a pass. So everything from uh m- Trump's border policies, to his family financial ties with Deutsche Bank, to uh, uh, everything on immigration, uh, uh, it, it, a whole gambit as Democrats take over uh, all these committees that have been fr- uh, Demo- where Democrats have been frustrated by Chairman, Republican Chairman refusing to issue any subpoenas on anything.
1: Talu, I want to pick up on something that you were just talking about, which is that right now the narrative is that this is a loss for President Trump. Is that narrative correct? I mean, yes, the Democrats did flip the House, but the Senate actually got even a more Republican uh, majority. And this was really the outcome that people had expected, if not, frankly, a little bit better than expected in the Senate for the Republicans, no?
6: Yeah, this was a mixed result, and both sides have something that they can capitalize on. And I think that's part of the reason you're seeing the president come out and do a press conference. He wants his narrative to get out there. You're probably gonna see more from the Democrats. Nancy Pelosi will probably be, be doing a press conference of her own where she gets out her narrative, but it's it we, we can't underestimate the impact of having house flip to Democrats having Democrats in power in the house for the first time in eight years and all of the various investigatory powers that they're they're going to have as a result of having the chairmanships of various committees having the subpoena power having the, the ability to call cabinet secretaries up before Capitol Hill and uh, change the narrative and, and dominate the media with that subpoena power and with that ability to uh, to change the uh, the, the, the national conversation. It's something Democrats did not have when they were out in the wilderness. They were in the minority in the House, in the Senate, and in the governor's races. Now that they have won a number of these races in the House, they have much more power to shape the national narrative, and that's probably what we're going to see later today with, this, with these dueling news conferences. Billy, uh,
2: the... Uh, the narrative though having to do with judicial appointments doesn't seem to have changed indeed we spoke earlier with Stephen dennis of bloomberg right. and he said it's like it, it's possible that you could get mitch mcconnell he'll be, he could be standing up there in five years saying the same thing about either supreme court or appointees to the federal bench
5: absolutely uh and so while that uh will likely be continued wins in the views of many Republicans. Uh, they will cast uh, what the House Democrats are doing as uh, harassment of, of the administration.
1: Toulouse, I, I want to just zoom out a little bit and talk about what sort of message the Democratic Party can take from this election, because frankly, it showed that there wasn't really as big of a blue wave as many people had expected, and that just sort of hatred for Donald Trump among people who swing left wasn't enough to give them a majority in both houses, both sides of Congress. I'm just wondering, what does this say for who people will look to pick for the 2020 presidential election?
6: Yeah, there's a lot of, the Democrats are going to have to do a lot of soul-searching, in part because they put up a number of different types of candidates, diverse candidates, progressive candidates, more moderate candidates, and it's hard to really get a... A clear message in terms of who won. We did see some of the progressive candidates win, but not a large number of them. A number of them ended up going down. Uh, we also so, saw a lot of the moderate candidates either go down, trying to win in Trump districts districts that were heavily uh, Republican, and just not being able to to pass that margin. So uh, we've seen the Democrats try a number of different tra- strategies in this in this race, and in some cases it worked. I think. Uh, having women run and ended up being successful for them. There's gonna be a record number of women in Congress and that may be something they look at in 2020 and trying to increase that the margin with the women's vote, which was pretty impressive for Democrats this time around, uh, in part because President Trump is toxic to a lot of uh, female voters. Uh, That may be something they try to hone in on, but uh, trying to convert other Trump voters to Democrats was not something that they were very successful at, and that's part of the reason they they had trouble uh, and they lost a number of seats in the
5: Senate. Billy? Uh, Well, aside from presidential aspirants, I, I would have to say that the party generally didn't is looking to tiptoe around those larger questions of impeachment that many of uh, outside of Congress are demanding they, they pursue. Uh, so uh, while Republicans are stirring the pot saying that's what this Democratic House is going to do and uh, other witch hunts, uh, you already see Nancy Pelosi and her lieutenants uh, insisting that they're going to wait for the special counsel Robert Mueller uh, and not tread into territory that maybe he won't even find or even report.
2: Well, as we wait for President Donald Trump to uh, give a post-election news conference, do you believe that there'll be anything done during the lame duck session between now and when the next Congress takes its seats?
5: Well, uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, just figuring out the leadership of both parties in the House, uh, even before you get to policy in, in the in the short time they yeah. have, uh, it's assumed Nancy Pelosi will be the House Speaker, but she uh, is going to have to do some maneuvering. Obviously, some of the newly elected incoming freshman members have said they would not support her. And with her uh, caucus uh, going to uh, number anywhere from 2, 218 to 219 to 229, I think it's at 222 now, she can't go to the floor to be elected speaker unless she secures 218 votes. So even before we get to that, they got to resolve their leadership thing. On the other side, Kevin McCarthy is the majority leader. He's the num—he's lost the majority. I mean, rural Republicans really like. Elect- the majority leader who lost the majority as their new minority leader. We'll have to wait and see.
1: You know, I, I want uh, to Talu talk a little bit about turnout because I know that in my district, there was a line out the door at 620 a.m. And I saw photographs uh, on social media and elsewhere of lines that were similar around the country. Do we have a final tally of just how big the turnout was for this particular midterm election?
6: Yeah, this is a, a record turnout election in terms of the number of people who, who turned out to vote. Uh, the earliest numbers, official t- totals that I've, I've seen has turnout out above 111 million uh, Americans and that's compared to I think about 84 million in, in 2014. Can you give us a
1: sense though of the proportion of the population because I mean the population is rising, so you would yeah, expect it to yes. be rising. Yeah, yeah th- sure. that, is,
6: that is true, but it's a, it's a huge jump, uh, almost 30 percent from 2014, and uh, the, even though we've had population growth, we haven't had it at, at that race, rate, so definitely a higher number. I think there are still numbers coming in, so I, I don't want to say specifically what the, uh, the turnout rate was, but you have to remember in 2014, we were at historically low turnout and the you know, 30s and 40s in a number of different states. I think we're going to be well above 50% in several states. Uh, places like Florida saw a huge turnout uh, in the high 50s and in the, in the 60s in some counties, uh, turnout that you don't normally get during a midterm, not necessarily presidential level um, turnout, but definitely really high turnout. And not only turnout among uh, Democrats, we saw a, a number of rural voters turn out at very high high rates. Normally, people think that high turnout is better for Democrats because you have new voters, you have younger voters, you have a more diverse electorate. But in this case, we saw uh, a number of Trump supporters, a number of r- rural voters turn out in very high numbers, and that was able. That was uh, part of the reason that the, the Florida race ended up being so close and part of the reason why uh, the Republicans are favored to win in those races.
2: Do the results, Billy, just echo the fact that the divisions in the country remain so deep?
5: I, I think they do. I think uh, the large turnout actually was reflective of excitement among the extremes. And therefore, for instance, in the House, some of the moderates, moderate, more moderate Demo, uh, Republicans, Corbello in Florida, and uh, Leonard Lance, New Jersey, they fell. So what was known as the Tuesday group, uh, Tuesday lunch group of moderates, is now down to a, uh, basically a snack. And uh, I think that is one of the the offshoots of a high voter turnout. The extremes turned out.
1: So Tolu, just looking forward here. I mean, one thing that's really striking to me is that the nation appears more divided than. I believe I have ever seen it in terms of district by district. It's, you just really can't make overwhelming characterizations. People are going more left. People are going more right. People are getting more extreme here. Is there anything that is sort of a unifying issue that kind of emerges from this entire election?
6: I would say health care, even though health care is one of the most polarizing issues that has caused so many fights in the Congress. We did see people uh, come out and candidates come out and and talk about defending and protecting pre-existing conditions. Uh, That's a Republican issue now. It's a Democratic issue. It's part of Obamacare. And even though Republicans voted multiple times to uh, repeal Obamacare and actually get rid of those pre-existing conditions protections or roll them back in in significant ways, this election in which health care turned out to be one of the top issues uh, ended up being a a situation where uh, both Republicans and Democrats agreed that Covering people with pre existing conditions, forcing insurance companies to cover those people at the same rate is something that they can agree on. Now, there's going to be a discussion about how to actually make that happen and how to actually craft legislation that can achieve that goal. But uh, the idea of repealing Obamacare and getting rid of those pre-existing condition protections is uh, an idea of the past right now.
2: We are, of course, awaiting President Donald Trump uh, giving a news conference to discuss uh, the midterm elections and their results and, of course, many other uh, topics. Uh, Tolu, just to uh, follow up on on what you said having to do with health care, it doesn't seem as though economics or the economy – was in the election this year or did i miss something
6: yeah if you look at the economy you would not expect there to be a multiple seat loss by the party in power in the house i mean this is an economy with 3.7 percent unemployment we have wage growth at least nominally that's uh, higher than it's been in several years and the economy has been, you know, working and firing on all cylinders for, for the, the last couple of years, definitely continuing the, the, the trend that was started under the previous administration. But President Trump said it very transparently on the campaign trail that he thought talking about the economy was boring. And he thought that you know, talking about things like immigration and the migrant caravan in Central America was much more of a motivating factor for his su- supporters. And that calculation was made. It right. helped in the Senate. It seemed to have hurt in the House. And uh, that's what the president decided to do. And I'm sure we're going to hear during this news conference that he believes that that was a positive and a su- successful strategy.
1: Billy, real quick, I just want to get a sense. Was there any foreign interference in this election, or is that something people are talking about?
5: There was uh, there's up to the, uh, this time been scant evidence of that. Uh, I mean, there certainly, obviously, probably was were attempts, but there has not been any. Of course, we learned about much of the last intrusion late is the fact
6: and we, we are starting a 45day clock under an executive order signed by President Trump that will force the uh, intelligence agencies to decide and, and, and confirm whether or not there was uh, any foreign interference and report that to the president and if that happened we will all know about it and there will be sanctions in the result something that is new during this election that there is a 45 day period the intelligence community will let us know sometimes sometime before the end of the year whether or not there was foreign in- interference.
2: Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Tolu Olorunipa, he is our White House correspondent, and our thanks also to our congressional reporter, Billy House. Much appreciated. Joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Amanda Albright, our municipal bond reporter for Bloomberg News. Amanda, as always, a pleasure to have you with us. Across the United States, U.S. voters approved more than $12 billion in bond sales to support school construction, water infrastructure, as well as upgrades to a variety of bridges and roads. Tell us about this ballot busting initiative and what it means for infrastructure spending.
7: Sure. So we've already seen the number of bonds approved, um, rise up to to 20 billion. We're still seeing results coming in, um, California, which is a big issue in state. We're still seeing results coming in there. So, um, we definitely expect that this will be another big year for bond measures approved by voters. Um, interestingly enough, it's actually been kind of a mixed year for bond ballot measures. Um, we saw Colorado voters, um, vote down over 9 billion in two different bond measures for transportation projects. Um, and California voters actually, um, did the rare thing of voting down um, over eight billion in bonds for water infrastructure um, that would have helped with like drought conditions and and things like that? So it was a really interesting year, and we're still kind of parsing through what it all means. Well,
1: yeah, I'm just wondering how much this indicates that voters
7: are concerned about paying more. Right. So I think it. It is a really interesting dynamic, and the way that I like to look at it is state by state. So um, New Jersey had one measure that I was very focused on because obviously New Jersey voters are worried about their taxes, um, they're worried about the state's finances, but New Jersey voters actually agreed to um, 500 million in bonding for schools. Um, but you go to a place like Colorado um, and voters you know, shot down these transportation measures, um, maybe a little bit of concerns about property taxes rising there.
1: Sort of interesting. Maybe it's the reason that people aren't concerned in New Jersey, perhaps, is the reason why they have a fiscal situation (laughs) that is is the way that it is, Pam.
2: Let's talk about just one state, North Carolina, for a moment. Uh, This is in Wake County. Yes. Voters approved a half billion dollars, more than a half billion dollars in uh, school construction bonds.
7: Yeah. So we've seen a lot of school measures. Um, you know, this basically the, the high amount of bond measures that we're seeing, you know, just across the board. California is always a big one. Um, Texas is a big one. But places like Wake County in North Carolina, not necessarily one where you'd see like a chart topping bond measure um, there. So what this really says is that, you know, states and cities across the country are getting a little bit more comfortable with taking on debt, um, which kind of speaks to where the economy is right now.
1: So moving aside from, uh, moving a little bit away from the actual ballot measures that would approve bond issuance, are there other measures that were voted on that you think are interesting and could affect the creditworthiness of different states? For example, I was speaking with one investor who said that the legalization of marijuana in
7: Michigan actually improves the state's finances because they'll be get more revenues. Right. So Michigan is a state that I definitely have my eye on. Um, that's a state where 14 out of 18 schools pass bond initiatives. Initiatives there um, they passed, you know, the marijuana initiative. Um, they've also just elected a Democrat as governor. And, th- and this d- governor is very friendly towards infrastructure. She ran on a plan of um, fixing the roads um, and, you know, outlined a very detailed proposal on infrastructure. So for Michigan, it's a state where maybe you could see debt increase, which would be a credit issue. But if voters are willing to raise taxes to pay for it, then, um, you know, maybe they can handle that increase in debt.
2: How about uh, affordable housing? How did that turn out uh, and a variety of ballot initiatives? I think there was one in California.
7: Um, yes, and in Oregon, voters approved over six hundred million in bonds for affordable housing. Um, that's something that you know bondholders actually worry about affordable housing because they worry about this idea of um, seeing out migration from communities where rents get too high and um, you know flight from really high housing prices. Um, you know, one investor actually emailed me today and said affordable housing is one of his top concerns, um, and he's based in Georgia, so he's talking about other communities. But that just gives you an idea of how important affordable housing is from a credit perspective.
1: So just overall, taking a step back, is it just hard to generalize when it comes to municipalities uh, acting or voters voting on things that are good for the bottom line or bad for the bottom line? It's just this sort of locality by
7: yeah I mean the thing that's kind of um, struck me this year is just on infrastructure it's a really really complicated year so you're seeing people be more bullish on infrastructure policies federally um, but on the local level with this Colorado measure failing and the um, big California measure failing we've also seen voters in Missouri and Utah reject gas tax increases it's really really hard to generalize about how people are feeling about infrastructure it might have something to do with the way that the the measures were advertised to them on TV or you know how the measures were um, written um, on ballots. Um, but it's kind of fascinating the way that there are these like nuances between different communities.
2: And just quickly, there were a couple ballot initiatives changing state laws having to do with whether they were going to increase taxes, right?
7: Yeah, that affected my home state of North Carolina. So voters there agreed to um, cap the maximum possible personal income tax rate. Um, North Carolina is an extremely low tax state. Um, It's AAA, so this isn't going to change their credit rating. But if there is a recession scenario, um, a lot of liberal groups in the state were a little bit worried about that. Um, In Florida, they passed a supermajority requirement on tax hikes. Again, uh, Florida's AAA, so not necessarily a credit rating changer, but definitely something that could crop up later on down the line and create Pressures.
1: Well, Amanda, we're going to let you go get some rest because I understand you were here all night. So uh, thank you a million times over for your coverage on all levels. uh, Amanda Albright, star Muni reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
2: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
5: Do you love Elon Musk?
2: Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you.